Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit traumaresourceinstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine Miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine Miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am your host, Elaine Miller Karras. And I would like, I'm so excited to have Bob Doppelt on our show today. The name of our show today is called The Urgency and Benefits of Building Resilience for Climate Emergency. So Bob Doppelt has organized and now coordinates the International Transformational Resiliency Coalition. Here on out, we're going to call it the ITRC because that's kind of a mouthful, Bob, wouldn't you say? So Bob's work on climate adaptation brought the realization that the human mental health and psychosocial impacts of the climate crisis were not being addressed. So the ITRC is now led by a national steering committee composed of 20 plus leaders representing major resiliency, health, faith, and other organizations, as well as local steering committees in different parts of the United States. The ITRC now has partners in the mental health, resilience, climate, disaster response, faith, and other professionals working to build psychological and psychosocial resilience for the traumas and toxic stresses generated by climate change in Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and other nations worldwide. The Hill Magazine published his commentary calling on the Biden administration and Congress to recognize the urgent need to link their efforts to address both the pandemic and climate crisis with community-based population-level initiatives to prevent and heal mental health and psychosocial problems. Bob is going to illuminate ideas on how to mobilize communities to meet this these international emergencies. But he's also going to give us some terminology of, you know, what does it mean? What's greenhouse emissions? What does it mean to have a carbon footprint? He's going to help us understand some of the terminology. And very importantly, he's going to talk to us about the ITRC. But he has done many things in his life. I want to tell you a few more things besides the ITRC. He is the director of the Resource Innovation Group. For almost a decade, he directed the Climate Leadership Initiative and taught systems thinking and global warming policy at the University of Oregon. And prior to that, he ran a research institute and taught at Portland State University. He's trained both as a counseling psychologist and environmental science, and he combined these two fields throughout his career. He is also a mindfulness teacher and a mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor. And in 2015, I'm so proud of you for this. I didn't realize this before getting this bio, Bob. He was named uh, one of the world's 50 most talented innovators by the World CRS Congress. And I am so grateful that you decided to come to our show today because you've also, you're also an author and um, you've written many books, but I want to highlight the transformational resilience book that you wrote through Green Life Publishing Company because you describe some of the most important concepts that I think I've learned from you. And you've been such a mentor and teacher for me regarding climate change. And it is just my honor to, to have you come and speak to us today. So what's on your mind right now as we're starting? 
Well, first, Elaine, thank you for having me here today. I, it's a great honor to be here, and it's always been an honor to work with you over the many years. Uh, for all of your uh, listeners, you should know that Elaine is a core member and one of the founding members of the ITRC, which she didn't mention. Um, so we've been working together, I guess, uh, seven, eight, nine years already on these issues. Oh. But uh, uh, yeah, we've uh, we've been at it for a while. And I guess what's on my mind today are sort of the big picture issues as we look around and I watched the news this morning and saw the distressing events occurring socially and ecologically, uh, the disasters occurring, and then the, the human disasters occurring in emergencies. That uh, just really is distressing. I need to stay, keep myself calm uh, to, to deal with that. And also at the same time, there's practical issues. Uh, I woke up this morning and realized my tire has a flat and I need to go fix it after we're done. So, <laughs> Well, you know, it, it is, I think this is one of the humbling things about being alive at this time. There's so many things happening in the world, climate change, the pandemic, the social injustices, and then there's life. There's like the flat tire or there's, you know, missing an appointment or I just have, uh, I just lost a crown and have to go to the dentist on Wednesday. I mean, these kind of things that also interfere with kind of our activities of daily living and yet, um, and yet we continue. And I was talking to a friend this week. I, this has just come to my mind. And he was telling me about watching this wonderful um, uh, documentary about geese and how geese, when geese fly, they honk. And he said, well, did you know why they honk, Elaine? I said, I don't know why. It's to remind the geese to keep going, even though it might be hard. And I thought, oh, my goodness, talk about a resilient story of honking geese. So maybe we're, we're, we're honking for each other, Bob, I think, as we go through life together, because sometimes it is hard to get to get through things. So and thank you for sharing that. So as we get started, one of the things I was hoping that we could start with is you telling us a little bit about some of the terminology that's used from climate scientists. And I'm not a climate scientist, you are. And there's words like greenhouse emissions, carbon footprint. And I know that you've shared one with me that I want to know more about, which is called moral hazards. So can you just start and help us you know, uh, educate us about what we need to know. Sure. Thank you for that question. So let me start at the real start um, uh, of this, that there is a natural carbon cycle on Earth where carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere uh, and carbon dioxide is added to with a number of other gases that are called greenhouse gases, methane and some others that blanket the Earth and form a, a cover that uh, that keeps temperatures at a certain level, or at least have for the last 10,000 years, uh, which has a, that temperature level that's existed for that period of time is what has allowed civilization to develop. And it's due to the natural carbon cycle, carbon going up, being uh, coming back down and being captured by vegetation, by the oceans, et cetera, being re-released uh, in this uh, continuous cycle. But starting uh, predominantly in the Industrial Revolution, uh, in the 1800s, we started to burn fossil fuels, and it's accelerated, especially after World War II, with the new technologies that were developed uh, and, and the rise in the population that's accelerated since then. And so we have added more of these gases to that natural blanket that surrounded the Earth at capturing more heat that radiated away from the Earth that has disrupted the natural energy balance of the climate system. That's what climate change 
is all about. It is about the fact that human activities, uh, predominantly the burning of fossil fuels, has added uh, more greenhouse gases to the blanket that naturally surrounds the earth and has uh, added heat. We've known that the greenhouse gases uh, capture heat, and we've known that this is a risk since the 1800s when scientists first talked about this. This is not new. Uh, our, the, the investigation of it, the measurement of it, etc., is relatively new, but that still means it's 30, uh, it, you know, 30 to 40 years we've known what's been happening, and it's really been accelerating. Well, you know, one of the things I, I was listening to the news this week, too, and I heard Avril Haynes, the director of our national intelligence, and I think I'm noticing this more, is that we are having our country's leaders talking more about climate change, but he stated to world leaders that climate change must be fully integrated with national security. President Biden committed the U.S. to cutting greenhouse emissions by half by the end of the decade. So I know that, you know, what does that exactly mean? And, and, and some of these terminologies, again, like the moral hazards, how does that all fit in together? Okay, so um, one thing that is really important, first of all, President Biden committed the U.S. to uh, reduce greenhouse gases by 50% by the end of the decade, roughly, uh, compared to 2005 levels. Um, And that's a very bold, a very positive step forward. But the commitment is coming very late in the game uh, and uh, and is uh, not going to actually prevent very, very serious impacts. I will also say that a number of other countries joined President Biden in making somewhat more modest commitments as well as private firms. This is really vital. It's really important. Uh, But we are still going to experience what is called uh, climate overshoot by the scientific community. Uh, And what this means is that there is a level of 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, 1.5 degrees Celsius, temperature level that if temperatures rise above that level compared to pre-industrial times, the best prediction predictions are that we will see very serious impacts to the planet and society that might in fact be irreversible. So once we exceed that 2.7 degrees threshold, uh, we then get into climate overshoot. Uh, and that is what we really are trying to prevent. Uh, but I, the, I think the best science indicates that even with the 50% emission reduction uh, commitment, we're not going to be able to do that. And in fact, temperatures are likely to exceed the 2.7 degree threshold. We're going to go into climate overshoot, so to speak, possibly later this decade. Later this or decade. early or sometime in the next decade. So this is coming our way very, very quickly. Let me say one other quick thing, that it's not just emissions that are the problem, that we have also, human activities have degraded ecological systems worldwide uh, and depleted biodiversity worldwide. And that has combined with the, with the added emissions to create the emergency. So for example, added heat and humidity are causing more species to go extinct. 
So we get this really cumulative effect that's going on. So we have to not only reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we have to dramatically reduce our impact on the natural environment to bring temperatures back down to manageable levels after they rise above the 2.7 degree Fahrenheit uh, threshold that, uh, that is the climate overshoot. That's what we really need to aim at first. To aggressively reduce emissions, but prepare people for the long period of climate overshoot that is now almost certain and wait and then do what we need to do to bring temperatures back down below that, uh, that threshold and uh, where temperatures are then manageable again. I see. And so is that connected to moral hazard? Because this sounds like an incredible emergency to me as you, as you explain this. It is a major mega emergency that we're facing. And most people don't get that. Uh, and I, when you talk about this, people, especially climate activists, uh, will often criticize uh, saying anything about it as a moral hazard. And what they mean by that is, oh, if you say that, it will depress people and reduce their motivation to engage in climate solutions or supports climate solutions. But my experience, and I think the research, and I think Elaine, your experience, yes, uh, would uh, absolutely show quite the opposite. That if you help everyone build their capacity for resilience or what I call transformational resilience, um, people not only become able to deal with these adversities much more constructively, they find they, they're able to find new meaning, new purpose, and realistic hope in life that leads to all sorts of exciting new opportunities, new solutions, uh, and it can increase well-being. So I think uh, the, uh, the climate field has missed the boat for many years in not talking about the climate overshoot that's happening and the need to build resilience. I think it's now time to have a, a national and a global initiative to build individual and collective psychological, emotional, and spiritual resilience for what is rapidly speeding our way, which is this long period of climate overshoot. So, so Bob, this is an important you know, um, time to also probably talk about your definition of resilience. You know, as we both know, that resilience can mean different things to different people. So when you speak about resilience, what is what does it mean to you? What does it mean to be a resilient person, to be able to be an active uh, contributor to the solutions um, that we're facing in the world right now? Uh, very good question. Thanks, Elaine. First of all, I think we all know, or many of the, the listeners probably know that when we when humans sense a threat, our our body and brain automatically release neurochemicals into our bloodstream to uh, prepare us to fight back or flee, uh, and if it's overwhelming, that can cause us to freeze. This is a natural human response, and it's very important. That's what's allowed us all to survive. Uh, and, and become the dominant mammal on earth, in fact, uh, humans. Um, but when we are not able to release those, that hyperarousal to allow ourselves to move beyond the fight, flight, or freeze reaction, that's when we often try, people try to anesthetize themselves to the distress they feel. 
that by uh, adapting maladaptive coping mechanisms, as I call them, they might abuse drugs or alcohol uh, or uh, withdraw into themselves or uh, become hyper or active, etc. Or they can turn their distress on others. Uh, and become more aggressive, more violent. They can abuse their spouse or children, uh, et cetera. So those are the individual impacts are what we call the mental health or psychological problems. And when you affect, when those affect other people, we call them psychosocial problems. And what resilience is about, first of all, is learning skills, learning different ways to regulate the nervous system and calm the body mind and emotions. So when you're able to deliberately practice skills, use methods to do that, you can then begin to make much more wiser and skillful decisions in the midst of adversity. And so I know that in your thinking, it's called presencing skills. So can you tell us what those presencing skills are, a little bit about them? Because it sounds like that would be a very foundational thing to be able to bring to our world community as they're facing climate um, hazards and emergencies. Yes, um, there are. We call well, there are actually two different parts of the resilience. I'll talk about the second in a second. The first is what you just described. What we call presencing skills. The second is what we call purposing skills. I'll get to that in a second. But the presencing skills, there's a wide variety of presencing skills, and they have to be what we call culturally appropriate or culturally tailored. Each individual, each family, each group and community will resonate with different kinds of presencing skills. Some are body-based skills, much like the skills that the uh, uh, Trauma Resource Institute and you have developed. Uh, There are breath-based skills. Uh, There are uh, thought-based skills, just trying to notice, am I catastrophizing here? Am I blaming other people, Uh, et cetera, just becoming aware of our thoughts. But there's also physical skills, just eating together with their family or others can calm the mind, body, emotions. You have to deliberately do that. Or getting good exercise and running a lot, uh, do that. Music can do it. Different groups, different populations will use different kinds of skills. So it's like a toolbox of skills that people can use to help them to return to what we call in in the community resiliency model, the resilience zone, or the zone of well-being, where they can then be at their best self. And I think that what we've seen in the community resiliency models, when people do that, there's something that happens to the cortex where they are more compassionate towards self and also um, can be better change agents for their community. That compassion spreads towards how can we um, come together and think about how we can reduce the, um, the greenhouse emissions, for example. What are the systems that we need to change? Um, so that's that's an important part. So what about the purposing skills? Because that seems to be another critical ingredient to what you've been bringing forward in the world. That's exactly right. Uh, let me say one other thing about purposing okay, sure. skills, that the social support networks, yes. having a couple of other people that you can rely on for unconditional emotional support and or practical assistance is vital. Uh, as part of presencing. You really need help from others. And that's what also helps you realize, boy, if they're helping me, I can help them. Uh, and this grows. But uh, if, if and when people find that they are able to regulate their nervous system sufficiently, that they can calm their mind, body, and behaviors, then 
and this is especially important from a climate uh, emergency perspective, uh, they need to decide how am I going to live my life in the midst of ongoing accelerating adversities. That's what purposing is about. What is my purpose? Uh, if it's just a one-time traumatic event you're dealing with, you don't necessarily need to think about that. But we're in the midst of a civilization-changing mega emergency that will go on for decades. Many clients, climate scientists say centuries. So people need to decide how they want to live what is their purpose? And there's a range of skills, just like with presencing, a whole toolbox that people can use to find purpose in life. And it starts with first learning how to turn towards uh, and learn about yourself and the world from the adversities. What am I doing that's contributing? What are other people doing that's contributing? Uh, it then involves uh, uh, trying to clarify the core values you want to live by in the midst of adversities. How do I want to think about myself? How do I want to treat others to live with dignity and pride? And then there's a whole variety of skills and different kinds of skills people can use to find realistic hope in the midst of uh, ongoing adversities. Those come together to really uh, motivate people, as, as you said, Elaine, uh, often to engage in pro-social activities that involve either helping other people, helping the natural environment, and or engaging in solutions or supporting solutions to the climate crisis. Those pro-social activities are a natural outcome of uh, purposing, which is why engaging in resilience and talking about these issues is not a moral hazard. It is just what we need to do. That's right, and it and it creates hope. But you know, Bob, you are so you know since the first moment I met you, um, I was very busy starting the Trauma Resource Institute, and you were like a dog with a bone, saying you got to join us. And I said, Oh my gosh, I'm so busy. I I don't know if I can do this. But there was a dedication that you had and a passion towards this that I. Um, I was very touched by. So I said, well, okay, I'm on board. But I'm just wondering, why, why did you decide to start a movement to build this personal and collective resilience for this climate emergency? But I'm really wondering, what was it about? Was it, did your parents teach you about appreciating the environment? Did you somehow have this awakening when you were a young person that I need to really focus my attention? I, I think it would be really wonderful for our listeners to know a little bit about you and what caused this spark to be such a world leader? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, I have always throughout uh, my life been interested and engaged in the outdoors. Uh, at a very young age, uh, age 16, 15, I had the opportunity to uh, join a program that went around the U.S. and mountain climbed and ran rivers and did all sorts of things. And then I went out uh, as a senior in high school and worked at a ranch in Wyoming uh, and, uh, and just got engaged in the outdoors. And a lot of my life has been uh, focused on that way. But I've also been always very curious about why do we humans do what we do? Why do I? do what I do. Uh, and so what motivates us? What's behind it? And those two things have sort of always been there. And I've sort of flip-flopped back and forth between them for a while. I first got trained as an environmental science at the University of Oregon. And, uh, but then I said, no, I'm, I'm interested in the other side too. So I went back and got retrained in counseling psychology 
uh, and my first job was working with uh, uh, troubled kids and their families, and I took them into the outdoors on an outdoor treatment program to combine the two. Mm. And what I saw was when you got them out of this this situation, this environment where the pressures and the cultural norms and, and uh, cultural narratives promoted dysfunctional behavior, when they got out there and were able to use their own skills and see that they actually had skills and resources, they changed. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so that's sort of what led me into this field. And then I'll, I also, after uh, that, that was always been in my mind, I then went back into the environmental field and really directed the Climate Leadership Initiative at the University of Oregon for a long time. We were focused, I sort of forgot about the other stuff. We were focused like almost the entire climate field has been on external physical factors, putting in bigger seawalls and pumps for sea level rise, et cetera. And then it was only after Superstorm Sandy came and hit the U.S. that we saw the mental health impacts and psychosocial impacts rise because of that. And I realized, wait a second, we're missing something critical, uh, a critical element that was not being addressed. And that's what led me to really dive back into the, uh, the human dimensions of the crisis uh, and led to the ITRC. Oh, my goodness. You know what? We've talked so much over the years, and I've never heard that story before. And I, I really want our listeners to know that we are going to be talking more with Bob Doppelt after our break, because he's going to go, we're going to go into a deeper dive in the, in the work that he's doing around the world. And also, I know that the ITRC has been working legislatively to try to bring awareness to our legislators about the importance of, and you know, I'm going to add the bio, I can't help myself, the biopsychosocial, because I do believe that what happens to us when we are experiencing climate emergencies is not only emotional and, of course, affects our social environment. Environment, but also affects our biology, which is why it's so important that I think Bob and I are both dedicated to this concept of um, regulation, because that's a body-centered regulation. And of course, the mind, body, and, and I believe the spirit are connected. And when we do that, I think we have such um, greater possibilities of creating a world that hopefully our children and our ancestors can be safer. And so what we're doing now has a great impact. And I think the other thing that maybe we can touch upon when we come back from the break, Bob, too, is, you know, sometimes it's hard to get people motivated until they have a personal experience with a climate change emergency. And so maybe we can um, talk a little bit more about that after the break. So we're going to go into our break right now for a couple minutes. And I want to thank, as we go into our break, the Trauma Resource Institute for being a sponsor of Resiliency Within. And when we come back from the break, we are going to hear more from Bob Dalpelt and his incredible leadership. And I'm going to say incredible because you have had to endure a lot and deal with a lot of, uh, I guess, spinning plates to bring this forward. <laughs> and he's giggling a little bit because, yes, it is, a, it is definitely a lot of spinning plates. So we'll be back in just a moment um, and we will talk more about climate change emergencies, about the human impact and Bob Doppelt's experience with this and his perceptions. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization 
cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at elaine at resiliencywithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Elaine Miller-Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back, everyone. And we're here with Bob Doppelt, leader in the climate um, uh, change field. Um, he is the organizer. I'm going to call you the creator of the I- ITRC um, and the ideas behind it, the International Transformation and Resilience Coalition. And we're going to continue our discussion. And I actually have another question for you. And I'm wondering um, what does this type of resilience building that we've been talking about involve and how does it differ from traditional mental health treatments and psychosocial supports beyond what we've also already talked about regarding presencing and purposing? Can you add a little bit to that discussion? Yeah, a very good question. First of all, it's important to know that everyone will be impacted by the mega emergency that is quickly accelerating. Uh, our, our, our mental health system is set up generally to help single people, individuals one at a time, or maybe a family one at a time, deal with uh, the difficulties they're facing. Uh, Our disaster mental health system is is set up just to help stabilize people 
that are impacted during a disaster. Um, uh, all of those will remain important as the overshoot, as we call it, the climate overshoot and the mega emergency continues. But they are going to be woefully insufficient to help the fact that we have a population level or a universal set of impacts that are coming our way. And we're already seeing that and probably many of the listeners uh, to this show are, are in places and countries where they're already seeing that kind of impact. So the difference between what we're talking about in mental health treatment and disaster mental health is that we really need to work at the population level, which means the uh, uh, universal level, and use a public health and a prevention science approach, which is very different than a medical model approach, uh, as it's traditionally called. And by a, pub, by a public health approach, we talk, we mean focus on everyone, not just people deemed, quote unquote, at risk or more vulnerable. Uh, also, it means strengthening protective factors that help people deal with adversities. And we've just talked about those presencing and purposing factors. Uh, and it also means focusing on prevention first, uh, not just treatment. And that's what our whole, our whole, in most countries, the mental health and physical health systems are illness uh, and crisis-based systems. They are not prevention systems. And so we were shocked when they become overwhelmed because we've done nothing to prevent uh, the, the problems in the first you place. Know, <laughs> Bob, I have to say that, you know, because you and I have been on some legislative calls recently. And one of the things that's been a little bit um, sad, not more, a little bit, but sad to me is that many of the people that we've talked to from different legislators office say, well, you know, when it comes to the budget, they oftentimes aren't interested in prevention. And so it just seems like there's something um, not quite right with that. So if we don't invest in preventive programs, how can we have enough of, I guess, the cadre of people that we're going to need to help with the, the mental health impact of these climate change emergencies? I don't know if you have any thinking about that. How do we get around that if, the, if legislatively um, they're not as interested as prevention than, I guess, putting out the fires. That's right. Uh, I think having these crises is, wakes people up. But there's an old friend that I had who worked uh, in legislative issues, federal legislation issues, that said, to change Congress, it's relentless pressure applied relentlessly. <laughs> relentless uh, and, pressure uh, applied, applied relentlessly. relentlessly. I want to ch- repeat that. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what we've been trying to do in our legislative work uh, and that you've been involved with, that we have to keep the pressure up. The people in Congress are overwhelmed already. Uh, I just got an email this morning, in fact, from one legislative aide, Senator Zay, who said, oh, I finally got a chance to read the document we sent and we sent up describing the need for this uh, community-based, culturally uh, grounded uh, uh, level resilience initiative. It's like three months after we first talked to them, so they're just so backed up with other things that they can't. So we have to keep the pressure up, but we have to help people understand the benefits, the actual benefits to people, the economic benefits, uh, the structural benefits, and benefits to communities and businesses of building universal capacity for mental wellness and resilience. That's really what we need. That's what prevention is all about. 
when we do that, there will still be people that need mental health treatment. The mental health system is going to still be needed. Uh, but even many of those will get the help they need from these community-based initiatives and not necessarily need clinical treatment. Well, so when we talk about community-based um, initiatives, and you certainly know that through the Trauma Resource Institute, we've been involved in also cultivating community-based um, organizations in learning skills of well-being that can not only help after an event, but really how you create preventive strategies. But there's so many different, um, I guess, uh, paradigms or constructs? What kinds of community-based, what specifically, what are you envisioning? What would be communities do, be doing in order to create this uh, new framework? Well, first of all, what we did extensive research over a year. We looked all over the world for successful uh, programs that would prevent and heal individual and collective traumas uh, that result from ongoing uh, adversities, not just single event adversities. Uh, and the, the result of the research uh, was that we, we proposed that communities, every community and every region in a rural area form what we call a resilience coordinating council. You can call it whatever you want that resonates in your community, but it's bringing together people that represent every population and sector of the community, bring them together to jointly plan and implement a range of age and culturally appropriate activities that help people build their capacity for resilience. This is very different from what we're traditionally doing where individual organizations are out there doing their own works. Often they're, conflict, they're competing for funds. There's gaps in the populations that are being served, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the focus is mostly on treatment not on prevention, on teaching people skills uh, to, do, to uh, prevent uh, mental health and psychosocial problems. And the, uh, I can very briefly say that the, the, the strategies tend to come down to five or six different things. Again, each community does it differently. But first is teaching basic presencing and purposing resilience skills, as we talked about. Second, uh, connected to that, these are all connected, uh, be a, be specific. Make a specific effort to strengthen, repair, and connect social support networks across the community. Related to that is uh, help neighbors neighbors build resilience and take responsibility for resilience at the neighborhood level. So people watch out for others in their neighborhood. They they walk the neighborhood in an adversity. See who's isolated, who needs food, etc and take steps. And fourth, to work with uh, local uh, civic, nonprofit, public and private organizations to have them incorporate resilience building principles and practices into their operations for their employees, for their clients, their customers, their stakeholders. And then finally, um, the other element and it takes a while to get there is you, add, you get local and state governments to enact policies that support and fund uh, uh, universal uh, resilience building initiatives. So what we've seen, and these are already underway, these kinds of initiatives around the world and in the U.S., we simply pulled the key themes, the key elements that we saw together into this model. We call it the National Mental Wellness and Resilience Act. Uh, it's again, we have it, it, the first goal of that uh, policy would be to make the 
prevention of mental health and psychosocial problems a national priority through community-based, culturally grounded, population-level resilience-building initiatives. We have no policy like that in the U.S. and most other no other country does either. To the extent we have any policy, it's treatment or prevention for specific issues, uh, uh, addiction prevention. It's not population prevention. And then secondarily, to, to engage and to, to help communities engage, put together these resilience coordinating council and, and develop strategies to engage in those activities. And I think that's what's really important too, for our listeners to know, you know, Bob and I both happen to be trained in in, a, in, in mental health modalities. But when we talk about these um, these task forces around the country, we're talking about everyone. We're talking about natural leaders of communities. Yes, there needs to be there. Also, we live in a in a society where we are fortunate to have um, trained mental health professionals, but they cannot do it alone. So that's why. Going back to the presencing skills, you don't have to be a licensed professional to teach skills of well-being. Um, you can, you know, teach mindfulness. You can teach community resiliency model skills. You can teach movement classes, yoga, the different things that can help with self-regulation. I mean, the toolbox can be varied. It can be many different kinds of things that many of you are already doing in your community. But I think what to me is hallmark about what you're saying is the coordinating aspect of it. Because oftentimes we work in our silos. We don't communicate together. And that's why these coalitions are so important. And I think that um, I just want to call out to our listeners that we had Mevin Boyd and um, Bo Dean from New Hanover County, North Carolina, that has created these this network. And you can listen to one of our podcasts a couple weeks ago that shows one of these um, ideas of what can happen to a community and how it changes it. But, you know, Bob, there is also one other thing I, I all of a sudden remembered. When we had a conference in Oakland, there was a, a gentleman, and I can't think of the name of the organization, but I bet you you'll remember, but he was from San Francisco, and he had these wonderful neighborhood coalitions. And one of the things that really struck me about what he said was in San Francisco, there had been a period where the the, the climate it had a heat wave, which was very uncharacteristic of San Francisco. And many elders were in really poor health as a result of being hit by the heat without air conditioning. And so those are the kinds of things that sometimes we don't think about, right? What happens if there is, um, if the climate starts to change and instead of a cool climate, San Francisco becomes the desert. I mean, those things impact people's lives. I don't know if you can talk a little bit more about that, because I think those kind of examples really were powerful for me to think about, okay, how do we do this? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think you're talking about Daniel Holmesy. Yes, that's somebody it, yes. we work with. Yes, yes. Uh, we just ran a nine-week, uh, the ITRC ran a nine-week training program in building community-based uh, mental wellness and resilience. We had uh, 70 people from all over the world involved. We're likely to do it again sometime soon, so we encourage your uh, listeners to look forward to that. But uh, Daniel was one of the uh, presenters, um, and uh, he runs the San Francisco Neighborhood Empowerment Program. Yes, that's what it is. Thank right? you. And uh, all of the programs that we looked at around the world that led us to this uh, approach, uh, none of them were focused on climate change. They were all focused on issues specific to their communities. So the Neighborhood Empowerment Programs, which is in San Francisco, started to, because it focused on building resilience for earthquakes. It's San Francisco. 
but they have now expanded to deal with these other issues. So that's one of the one of the programs we've learned from about how to build resilience at the neighborhood level, so people could check in with their neighbors who's being impacted by the heat wave or food shortages or other kinds of impact who needs help how can we assist each other etc etc and in doing that you also then develop stronger social support networks that we're talking about and you can teach people basic resilience skills and or when people are really distressed um, you can uh, neighbors can try to help link them with external supports um, to provide them possibly with the food or uh, air conditioning they need or with mental health services if that's important. Um, so those working at the neighborhood level uh, through the program that the Neighborhood Empowerment Program does, a Neighborhood Problem Network does. There's another program in, San, in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, run by uh, Father uh, Paul Abernathy that's the Neighborhood Resilience Project. Um, they also, they're helping mostly African-Americans um, uh, and BIPOCs, uh, Black and Indigenous people of color, who have been traumatized by ongoing and historic racism for decades, help them uh, create wellness. Uh, and they've focused on jobs as well as resilience skills, et cetera. It's all connected on health, uh, learning about health, et cetera. Uh, so there's a number of programs that are doing this kind of work that uh, can really die and I in your country in your community already just need to look for it okay now it's back okay really? he said okay. there was a programs that are um, really um, growing up around the country that are beginning to look at um, the communities in this way that's right uh, and the, the key is to really go look for them there uh, and bring them together uh, and, and the Resilience Coordinating Council, the th- those are three words that are really important. First, the focus is to build resilience, not treatment per se. And the second is to coordinate these efforts to avoid the overlaps, the competition, the siloing, but just as importantly, to make sure that there's no populations that are not uh, receiving these kinds of uh, opportunities to learn these skills, to look for the gaps and who's not, doesn't have the opportunity to learn resilient skills and connect with others, et cetera. That's what this coordinating function is really about. And that's really about working with the entire community, not just pockets of the community. So that's the diversity exactly right. that you talked about in Pittsburgh, how important that is to reach out to people of color, to, um, to seniors, to people of different abilities as well, because we know if people are, let's say, um, wheelchair-bound, that that's going to impact when there's some kind of climate change emergency. So it's really inclusive of the entire community. But I'm wondering, as you you gave us some examples, I don't know if there's any more specific things that you might want to say. Maybe we have some listeners out there going, well, I'd like to get involved with this. How do I do it? How would I go to my community? Where would I start? Is there any recommendation that you have of where they may be able to start to start organizing their community? Yeah, it's a great, great uh, question. If uh, you have some basic skills and knowledge and background in this field, what you, the best thing to do is to find, identify one or two other people that you know that you think might be interested, have coffee with them, have lunch, whatever, by Zoom for now and then in person once you're all <laughs> vaccinated um, and start to grow, it sort of develop a, a core group of, I don't know, two to five people 
that uh, and get clear about what your vision is about what you want to achieve and how you're going to achieve it and then get a strategy together to go out and start talking to other community leaders about this vision. Uh, you can do it yourself, but it's better to get two to five people together, a core steering committee, and just start talking to people around the community, eventually reaching out to officials in the community. Uh, talk to the mayor, the city council members, uh, county staff, et cetera, if you're in, a, if in, the, in the U.S. or provincial staff, uh, and try to help them understand the need and the methods that you propose, bring in some outside uh, uh, experts if you can. You, Elaine, you've got uh, seem to be on a plane uh, almost uh, 80% I of the time. Used to be. Used to be before be. COVID. Um, <laughs> but there's lots of people that can help uh, to bring to, to, to develop this uh, and uh, awareness and then ask those officials for support. Sometimes they might provide financial support uh, to get things going. Maybe they'll provide office space or in-kind help uh, will provide you know, you can go and use our copy machine you know or, uh, and other sorts of things and you then then slowly identify other people in the community that can be that can help with this initiative and expand uh, your network until you have uh, a, a, a resilience coordinating council you're not going to get everybody involved initially uh, but just get it large enough that you can start engaging in activities Many of the most marginalized groups are not going to engage initially. They don't trust a lot of the things that are going on. So let them uh, t take some time to sort of watch the kind of engagement you do. Uh, but bring in the school districts, bring in the YMCAs, bring in the Rotary Clubs, bring in some private businesses, et cetera, and have them participate. Uh, and then at the same time, look for, and Elaine, you just said this, the natural leaders uh, in the community that represent and work with marginalized populations, especially who do they trust, uh, who do they work with, and see if you can talk with them individually and then ask them to sort of just participate in this growing resilience coordinating council. Just watch what we're doing for a while and then ask them if they want to participate and you can grow it in, in this way. So um, uh, certainly there are training programs like we run and that you run, your organization runs and others that they can get involved with also, but you don't necessarily need to do that. You can just uh, begin to talk about uh, these act, these needs and how to do this in your community and grow it on your own. That's how they all start. They don't start with a top-down uh, program that uh, the mayor uh, announces, uh, although some do. Um, the uh, uh, Peace for Tarpon in Tarpon Springs, Florida uh, started that way when uh, uh, Robin Sanger, the former vice mayor, decided saw violence in the community happening and couldn't figure out how to, what to do about it, so she formed Peace for Tarpon. But most are started from what we call middle-out approaches. Uh, respected residents of the community get together and start building this kind of initiative. Well, so, you know, Bob, as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, you're really giving us the playbook of how you created the ITRC, you know, step by step. I mean, you brought people together. I didn't know you when you first approached us and came to our crim teaching um, that we did in, in, uh, in Oregon, but you've done that. And so I think one of the things that you did so well is the series that you just finished. Now, can people access that um, um, that program? Did you record them so they could, you know, go into the website at ITRC and listen to that program or not? 
Yes. Um, uh, first of all, you can find lots of materials on the ITRC website. Just Google the International Transformational Resilience Coalition, uh, and it'll come up with the Resource Innovation Group. Go to the to go to the home page. There's a lot of information, but also there's another uh, page there that has all of the slides and recordings, and even all the chats because it was done on Zoom for all nine sessions of the ITRC training program. And so uh, have at it, dive into it. Uh, and, and does and it cost anything to do? Not a thing. We Did want you hear to. that? It's free. You yeah. can go and Every- take this series and you can learn how to organize your community. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I call that an amen, hallelujah moment. So can you also tell us, um, Bob, the name of your book and where people can get it? Again, I'd love to hear you say the words of your book. Well, the book, uh, the, the, the latest book is Transformational Resilience, How Building Human Resilience for the Climate Emergency Can Increase Well-Being. And it's uh, published by Greenleaf Publishing, uh, which is now part of uh, another big firm. But you can get it on any, any uh, website, uh, Amazon uh, and others, and many uh, bookstores have it. Um, so, uh, And I've seen even uh, uh, cop, uh, probably illegal copies of it printed, and you can get oh them. Oh, my it's goodness. Down. People uh, are pirating it because it's such a uh, great read. Okay. Yeah, it's a great read, it. so you have to get Bob's book. Um, the other, Bob, I want to thank you so much for coming and sharing your wisdom with us. Um, you'll have to come back again. Um, because I know there will be more, especially if some of these things legislatively may work out that I know that you're working on and there could be some more publications in sight that I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Um, so thank you so much for your wisdom. And is there, you know, we have about a minute left. Any parting thought you want to leave the um, our uh, audience with? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's, it's been uh, my honor. And I just want to encourage all of the listeners to think about how you can personally build your own uh, resilience for the uh, what I call the trauma scene that's coming our way uh, and help your family, your community build resilience as well because uh, it can do, create a tremendous amount of benefits for everyone. And so I'm just going to end our show today. You know, I often say this, what else is true? We heard Bob mentioned the moral hazards. Yes, they they do exist, but something else is there as well. He mentioned the word hope, and I'm a very hopeful person myself. So remember what else is true and how you can cultivate that not only in yourself, but into your wider community. I look forward to see you next week. I'm going to have Patty Giggins from Peace Over Violence, who will talk about the importance of the work she has um, led in L.A. County and beyond. And uh, I will see you then. So until we meet again... Remember what else is true. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.